sensations. Good day, everybody. This is Darvo here, sitting with Beck. Hi, everybody. Thanks for listening. Today's topic is delirium, important common condition. But let's start off with a, a crazy case that happened on my ward recently. Betty, not her real name, is an 83-year-old lady who came from home alone, presenting with confusion on a background of heart failure, but no previous history of dementia. She was a poor historian, poor historian, <laughs> historian, easily distractible, poor prognostic sign. <laughs> non-attentive, uh, but on collateral we know that she was seen well the previous day and there was no suggestion of infection or new medication. On examination, her obs were stable, she was afebrile, chest was clear, abdomen soft non-tender, bloods were NAD apart from CRP which was 37, chest x-ray showed nothing but then more than a thousand lukes in her urine. Mm, so it sounds like a UTI underlying this, this current presentation of delirium. As I said, crazy case. But it, it got a bit more complicated. UTI was treated with amoxicillin and clavulanic acid. Patient didn't get better for a couple of weeks. Conscious state was fluctuating. She became agitated at times. And then at that point, it was thought that maybe she's developed an infection somewhere else. So repeat chest x-ray was done and showed bilateral lower lobe consolidation. Mm. Hospital-acquired pneumonia, treated with IV antibiotics, piperacillin slash tazobactam, known as tazosin, but the patient still didn't get better. And in the meantime, her bloods were looking worse and worse. CRP climbed all the way up to 300. She went into acute on chronic renal failure. ESR became unmeasurable, greater than 140. Um, and LFTs were deranged as well. So she was pretty sick. Mm, okay, so I know there's more you're about to tell us, but just to summarise up to this point, so we've got a patient who's come in, um, an 83-year-old who'd been previously well, who's come in with a UTI, treated with um, Augmentin, but that didn't work. It's been two weeks. Now she's got bilateral low, low consolidation on her chest X-ray, mm. and she's still not getting better despite treatment with Tazacin. And then what happened? And then she had a seizure. Mm. So at that point, the patient was started on levetiracetam, also known as Keppra, and she became increasingly hypoactive and apotundid. At that point, some further investigations were ordered. CT brain showed nothing. Lumbar puncture showed nothing. EEG showed some slow wave activity, but nothing specific. And uh, MRI was not possible because the machine wasn't large enough. Ah, so she's obese as well. Mm. So the patient's condition didn't improve, and we were looking at uh, palliative measures at this point. And as a final desperate measure, steroids were trialled, high dose IV steroids. Two days later, the patient was sitting up and chatting. No way. Mm. So the diagnosis of vasculitis was made there. I I wanted to talk about this um, case for a few reasons. Firstly, because it shows that delirium can often be multifactorial. And uh, this lady had the most common causes, UTI, chest infection and drugs. The Keppra caused her to be increasingly hypoactive. And also a very rare cause, which is vasculitis. And also kind of shows you the secrets of investigation, like the basic chest x-ray, urine that you do, and then you eventually progress onto CT brain, EEG and LP. So that's the case. And now a little bit more about delirium. We'll just run through 
you know, all the basic stuff. How common is it? How does it present? How do you define it? How do you treat it? What the most common causes are? Sounds good. So how do you define it? It's a three-part definition. There's going to be a lot of triads on this podcast. Good. Love a good triad. Uh, so three-part definition, part one, has to be a disturbance of consciousness, which refers to like their level of alertness, how attentive they are, how distractible they are. It has to be rapid onset. And it has to be secondary to a medical condition that's outside of, as a geriatrician consultant likes to call it, the head box. Uh, so things like stroke causing confusion uh, doesn't count as delirium. Is it very common, Beck? I've seen a lot of it. Mm. So I'd say a good third of, um, of medical patients on the wards. Really? That coincides very closely with the actual statistics. 30% of older, that's greater than the age of 65, of medical patients have delirium. It's very, very common. 10 to 50% of older surgical patients with post-op state being a very common cause. And 70% of ICU patients have delirium. Mm. Pathogenesis. Surprise, surprise, multifactorial, not much is known, that old stuff. But there's two points that I'd like to raise. Firstly is that you get global cortical dysfunction, so that's um, cortex rather than subcortex. And that shows up on EEGs as slow-wave activity, which is actually very sensitive. And you can use EEGs in cases of diagnostic confusion to sort out whether something truly is delirium or not. As opposed to epilepsy, which might show up on an EEG in a different Mm, way. Exactly. Um, Acetylcholine also plays a key role. And uh, that's important to remember because anticholinergics can really set people that are prone to delirium off. So think twice about prescribing amitriptyline or something like that in the older population. So three important underlying risk factors, three things that predispose people to delirium. Age, sensory impairment, so particularly hearing and visual loss. Anosmia, probably not quite as large a risk factor and underlying brain disease, in particular dementia and stroke and Parkinson's disease as well. Another triad, triad of presentation. So three things that you need to make the diagnosis of delirium. You need a disturbance of consciousness, as we talked about before, inattentiveness and distractibility. So changing cognition. What kind of things do you look for to identify whether someone has a change in cognition back? So if they've got memory loss, if they're disoriented, <coughs> disorganized thinking can be a sign. Mm. Language difficulties, so people who people who speak multiple languages can lose an entire language. Mm. Or just often people that are from a non-English speaking background become significantly worse at their English um, than they did before, which makes communication even more difficult. Mm. And they can get perceptual disturbances as well, so mm. hallucinations can be quite common. Mm. For anyone that's seen train spotting, that really creepy scene with the baby crawling along the on the roof and then like twist its head around at the guy coming down from heroin. It's a nice hallucination and delirium for you. <laughs> <laughs> and temporal course is the other third part of the triad. So acute onset fluctuating. And the thing that I learned recently is that there's often a prodrome. So if people are becoming increasingly irritable or depressed or anxious in a certain patient population, it's probably wise to think whether they might be coming down with a delirium. 
So the triad of presentation, again, just to summarize, disturbance of consciousness, change in cognition, and temporal course. Mm. So now a little bit about the different instruments that you can use to make the diagnosis of delirium. The best one is something called the CAM, the Confusion Assessment Method. And there was a study that was published in uh, JAMA in 2010, which compared 11 different instruments and found that the CAM had a sensitivity of 94 to 100% and specificity of 90 to 95%. Uh, it's important to remember that mini-mentals are really bad, that this trial showed that the mini-mental was the very worst instrument for diagnosing delirium. Really? Mm-mm. And yet that's the one that's most often used. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And this one's much quicker as well. It only looks at four things. It looks at the acute onset and fluctuating course, at inattention, at disorganized thinking, and an altered level of consciousness. So another triad, the triad of etiologies here. So the three things that run through my mind when someone has a new delirium, I think of drugs, I think of infections, and I think of electrolytes and metabolic disorders. So things like hyponatremia is quite common. Uh, hypoglycemia, don't never forget the glucose, uh, hypercalcemia, uremia. Mm. So there are, of course, many etiologies, but these are the top three, drugs, infections, and electrolytes and metabolic disorders. Mm. So some of the other things on that full list that you think about once you've got past those three, um, low perfusion states, post-op states, hypoxemia, hypercarbia, Wernicke's, seizures, trauma, paraneoplastic syndrome, really anything that makes someone sick can cause delirium in someone who's got the fragile brain as we talk about. So now we're going to talk about differential diagnosis, which is another triad, luckily, called the triple D trial, depression, delirium, and dementia. This can be pretty difficult to differentiate between, but the most important thing to remember is a time course. really helps here. Mm. So how do we investigate this? As an intern, you'll get told, do the delirium screen all the time when someone starts becoming a little bit delirious. So what does that mean? In terms of bloods, you should do an FBE, UEC, CRP, CMP, that's calcium, magnesium, phosphate, TFTs, that's thyroid function, LFTs, that's liver function, and ABGs, which is arterial blood gas. And then you should also do a chest X-ray, urine MCS, and B12 folate are often done, but they're not useful at all. They're not useful? No. Because they don't cause delirium? Or? It's just extremely low yield. shouldn't be on a right. initial screening test. It's often done on a geriatric screen because a lot of older people are deficient in those, so they'll generally have a B12 folate, but specifically for delirium, not useful. Mm. And then as we saw in our case, once you kind of get a little bit more desperate for what might be causing it, you might do some more advanced investigations. So CT brain, um, there was a retrospective study of 214 patients that found a diagnostic yield of 14%. And it's worth remembering that only 4% was in uh, patients without signs, so it's pretty low yield if someone's got no neurology at all. Lumbar puncture has been found to be useful. And uh, EEG testing um, there was one study that found out of 198 EEGs done to evaluate altered consciousness, 37% ended up having probable non-convulsive status epilepticus. So that's quite a specific subset of patients, patients that were uh, referred to neurology because they didn't know what was going on. 
but that's still an important thing to remember. That's crazy. Mm. So, so that was over one third of patients in this mm. study who had status ep- ep- easy for me to say status <laughs> epilepticus, but non-convulsive. I'd never even heard of that. Yeah, yeah, it's so, a it's a differential to consider when you're getting desperate. So we've talked a little bit about what it looks like and what can cause delirium. How can you prevent delirium? Mm. So there's there's a long list of things that you can do, uh, but some of the ones that are worth mentioning, there's been a study doing on ICU patients that's shown that earplugs, so helping people sleep in the busy hospital environment actually does prevent um, delirium in a significant way. Uh, really important to avoid high-risk medications. It's really easy to just automatically chart stuff without thinking twice. And you should really be careful about charting benzos in the older um, population. That's benzodiazepines. Opioids, particularly tramadol, that really um, sets people off. And antihistamines as well, which is one that I didn't really know about, but important to remember. And... As a kind of thing to balance against that, you need to manage pain because pain can cause delirium as well and often you need to use opioids to do that. So it can be a real balancing act. And there is some evidence emerging that melatonin um, might be effective in preventing delirium. And some of my consultants at the moment actually do use that, but that's probably a little bit above kind of the junior medical officer role. And once someone's actually become delirious, again, three steps that you should consider in management. So step one, sometimes forgotten, treat the underlying condition. Right. So if they've got pneumonia, don't just put in earplugs. Mm. Treat pneumonia. (laughs) Supportive care. So that's traditionally taught as the most important pillar of delirium management. So they have to have a good environment. So often there'll be big clocks with a calendar on the wall in hospitals and that'll, to help, that'll be to help orientate um, older patients or delirious patients. Familiar objects can help, and it's really, really helpful if you encourage the family members to be there as much as possible. Pharmacologic agents don't help with actually shortening the duration or incidence of delirium, but they, can, they are sometimes necessary to control really agitated behaviour when patients might be a risk to themselves or others. So there's very little actual evidence on what's best because it's obviously hard to run randomised controlled trials um, in delirious patients. But a haloperidol is the commonly used first-line drug and it's what we have the most experience with. Mm, But there is a little bit of evidence emerging for some of the newer antipsychotics like olanzapine. Mm. And uh, again, benzos, benzodiazepines, avoid at all costs, except in people that are withdrawing from alcohol or other drugs. That's when it's used. And the reason we do that is because it lowers the seizure threshold. Mm, so those three steps, again, were um, treat the underlying condition, supportive care, which those two are really the mainstay of treatment, and mm. thirdly, pharmacologic agents, usually just mm. to control acute behavioural disturbances. Mm. And to end on a bit of a sad note, Poor prognosis in patients with delirium. At the moment, uh, people that become delirious in hospital don't tend to do very well long term. Uh, so the one month mortality is 14%, and then once they're out of the kind of one month wood mark, uh, 20, it reduces a bit, so 22% at six months. Mm. And a lot of them end up with persistent cognitive dysfunction as well. 
with only one-third of patients who experience delirium in hospital still living independently in the community after discharge. So it's no good. Hmm. One thing to remember as well, though, that terminal delirium isn't non-reversible. Just because someone's got terminal delirium doesn't mean you shouldn't go looking for other causes like UTI or pneumonia because in 50% of cases, they are reversible. Sorry, what do you mean by terminal delirium? So people that are becoming delirium at the end stage of life. Okay. So palliative patients. Right. So they're not <clears throat> terminal because they're delirious. They're delirious exactly. whilst being Good in a point. terminal Good state. Point. Yeah, yeah. All right. So we've reached the end of the podcast. And so some triads for you to remember there. The three-part definition of delirium. Which is disturbance of consciousness, fluctuating time course, and that it's secondary to a medical condition outside of the brain box. <laughs> There's a three-part definition in the presentation. Disturbance in cognition, disturbance in consciousness, and the temporal course that is fluctuating uh, with a sudden onset and often a prodrome. The triad of etiologies that you should think about first. Drugs, infections, and electrolytes and metabolic disturbances. The triad of differentials. Three Ds, delirium, dementia, and depression. And three things to think about when managing delirium. Treat the underlying condition, supportive care, and when all else fails, pharmacologic agents. Awesome. Thanks very much for listening, guys. Thank you.